You're listening to The Zeitgeist, a podcast focused on Germany, the United States, and the transatlantic relationship. Join us as we discuss economics, trade and technology, politics, security, and a lot more. I'm Jeff Rathke, president of the American German Institute at Johns Hopkins University. Let me welcome everyone to this episode of The Zeitgeist. Uh, we are here today with Professor Gabriel Felbermeier. Welcome. Hi, Jeff. Well, uh, we are here just after concluding uh, an inaugural meeting of a new project that the American German Institute is carrying out along with the BMW uh, Foundation. Um, and I'm joined, uh, as always, when we talk about economic uh, issues by Vice President uh, Peter Rashish. Um, Peter, hello, welcome. Jeff, hello. So we've been talking about transatlantic climate statecraft. Um, and Gabriel, I want to start off just by asking, maybe to take your temperature uh, on this, um, how concerned are you about the state of the international economic um, order um, and the institutions that uh, that form the framework for that order. Yeah, I'm uh, quite concerned, to be frank. Um, I think the World Trade Organization uh, is in a deep crisis. Um, it still convenes. Uh, countries still file cases, uh, but um, it has lost its... Uh, uh, its 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 role uh, in uh, having the final word on trade policy questions. Uh, then, if you look uh, at uh, other multilateral institutions, IMF, for example, the World Bank, uh, they've lost uh, market share massively uh, to other uh, lenders uh, from China and elsewhere. Um, and the the narrative uh, that the so-called West uh, has. Uh, uh, on offer, that narrative has lost appeal, it seems. So, so I, th I think the, 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 the situation is, is difficult. The institutional setup is, is uh, in crisis. And at the same time, we, we have clear evidence that um, uh, many countries around the world are using protectionist policies more and more. Over the last years, we've seen a, a, you know, a, a, a burst uh, uh, of uh, export controls uh, that the WTO has never liked, and trade economists hated for very good reasons, but they are, you know, they've become um, uh, frequently used. Uh, we see we see subsidies races uh, uh, that 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 uh, uh, certainly, um, you know, uh, a, a reason to worry. They could uh, lead to conflict, uh, and uh, uh, the 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 convergence between you know uh, economic security and economic issues and 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 wider international relations issues that convergence has become tougher too right mm -hmm. with uh, economic security being um uh equalized as uh, as being national security and and so all these things together i think the, the global order is indeed in a state of crisis mm -hmm. now you are the director of the Austrian Institute for Economic Research, but you have uh, worked in Germany uh, as well for many years and uh, acted as an advisor to various uh, German uh, governments and ministries over the years. Um, so in, in light of this um, deterioration of the uh, international economic uh, order, 
Do you think it is now the time or the right moment for organizations and institutions like the G7 um, or the US-EU Trade and Technology Council to play a greater role than they have in the past? Is, now, is, is, is that the contribution that, uh, that they can make uh, against this backdrop that you've described? It's probably a consequence of uh, of this situation, uh, not necessarily uh, something that uh, one would have uh, wished for in the first place. No, it would rather be, I'd rather would like the multilateral order to to function and to deliver. Uh, but if it does not, and it manifestly does not, then uh, uh, we we have to go for the second best solutions, and those second best solutions are clubs of of, of various types, of various sorts. Hopefully, clubs that are overlapping the uh, the G7, the G20, uh, the transatlantic tie, but also uh, the BRICS and the BRICS Plus. I think uh, um, that's you know the proliferation of such initiatives is the consequence of the of the multilateral order being in trouble. Um, and yes, I you know uh, I prefer the second best to a situation where you know. Uh, there are no policy initiatives anymore, and uh, uh, I hope that you know the the transatlantic relationship, which is still by far, really by far, this, the, the largest uh, in economic terms of all bilateral relationships in the world. Uh, you know, the, 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 these ties help us come up with solutions, and uh, you know, at the, at the you know, in some sense, we can say it was you know, multilateral order being in, in trouble. Yes, but um, even when the you know the system was still working uh the transatlantic tie was important for it so so if if there is now a little bit more hope uh maybe also based on work that's being done right now uh with your support and and and, and um assistance that if if we get solutions uh that work for the transatlantic economies then this could be something useful for the multilateral uh system as well Gabriel, as we think about the arrangements of the global trading system and how we might need to reform them, uh, climate change is becoming an overriding part of that. Um, so do you think that the WTO and its rules provide its members enough policy space as they are for them to combat climate change? Um, or do you think that the rules need to be reformed to give them more policy space, and if they do, do you see, you know, in the short to medium term, a viable path forward for reforming um, the WTO's rules as they apply to to climate, and and you know, more more broadly, how how do we how do we create a a, a reimagined international economic order that's also an international climate order? Mm, a very good question. Peter, if you if you think about the the foundations of the World Trade Organization, well, they were laid down in the Uruguay Round. The Uruguay Round started in the 80s. Uh, the mandate that the European Commission had to negotiate that uh, that round uh, even older. And uh, of course, you know, there, there was at that time the beginning of a climate uh, discussion. But uh, compared to what we need today, no one knew back then uh, what the requirements would be 30 years later. And so I think it is it is you know trivial but true uh, that the the rules that govern the the world trade system are not designed uh, for the type of uh, uh, situation that we are facing today, mm -hmm. namely um, the failure of uh, uh, you know decentralized decision making to 
uh, contribute sufficiently towards that big public good, which would be uh, save the climate, right? And um, uh, for example, if you look at subsidies or the or the, the the legislation at the WTO in place uh, to, to to discipline subsidies, uh, subsidies in agriculture or in you know classical manufacturing uh, were, were meant to. Uh, or the disciplines that were meant to to reduce subsidies to make subsidy raises unlikely. Uh, if the overriding objective now is to save the climate, subsidy raises are maybe welcome, because uh, you know they put a lot of money uh, onto that problem uh, and uh, raising for uh, the the good technologies and, and raising for scaling up production and so on is is certainly helpful uh, for the climate. It might uh, you know there might be uh, Huge costs to it, and and, and uh, uh, there might be collateral damage in the sense that uh, you know countries get into fights over those subsidies. Uh, but um, you know the, the the old logic of the WTO, how to deal with subsidies, doesn't really you know uh, fit to the to the situation that we're facing, where we where the subsidies are actually there to promote that that um, global uh, public good, and so. Yes, the WTO needs to be reformed, and yes, it does stand. Um, it, it, is, it is an obstacle to 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 certain to certain initiatives. Or take the uh, CO2 border adjustment mechanism that that Europe is now phasing in. The CBAM. Uh, the CBAM. Uh, you know, uh, when I teach the CBAM to my students, uh, you know, I can. I can convince them that this is a fantastic tool and that the CBM should work like uh, board adjustment uh, with other indirect taxes, like value-added tax. But um, it has its it has some some uh, unique uh, problems. So we don't know what the tax base really is. The carbon content of goods is not is not easy to assess. Because of that issue, uh, the European Union has decided uh, to to rely on Article uh, Twenty. Article 20 uh, uh, to to justify CBAM, and that means uh, there cannot be any export side adjustments, right? So some products are now um, or will be subjected to to a, to a levy, uh, to, a, to a to a climate tariff, some say, but uh, the the climate uh, or the, the CO2 cost paid in Europe will not be rebated at the border for exports. Very different to the value added tax, and so that means it's just a half baked thing. It, it's it, it will help to some degree but uh, it doesn't solve the the problem that you know only 20 percent of, of the world has a co2 price and other 80 percent does not uh and why Be- because of you know the wto uh, disciplines that that make it hard to 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 have an export rebate that is uh, consistent with the current rules so in, in that sense we would need a reform of the wto we know that we have no we have known that for the last 15 years Right, uh, it's very difficult, and so again, another reason why um, I guess plurilateral or bilateral uh, initiatives will become more important. You were speaking about the transatlantic relationship and its its role, and you know I think we do see that the U.S. and EU have some common um, ambitions for both trade and climate policy, but we also see some ongoing frictions. Uh, whether those are having to do with this um, ambition to create what's called a global uh, arrangement on sustainable steel and aluminum, which would have a joint approach to uh, carbon-intensive and subsidized um, exports, uh, you know, for example, or we also saw some um, some frictions over the Inflation Reduction Act. Um, 
do, do you think that it's 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 reasonable? You know, thinking about this as an economist, do you think it's reasonable for the U.S. or the U.S. and the EU together, if they do, if they come up with this kind of um, joint approach to steel and aluminum, to to be targeting two different issues with one measure to be targeting carbon intensity and subsidized overproduction, or do you think that that's a reasonable goal that they should have um, for these negotiations? Well, there's always uh, a, a risk if you have. Uh uh, two objectives and only one instrument uh, that you might miss on both of those objectives. No, uh, one of the, or oh, actually the first Nobel Prize winner, so-called winner of the Nobel Prize in economics, Jan Tinbergen, came up with that, with that problem. It's, uh, it's still true, I guess, just logically. Um, but then there's, uh, you know, that, that's theory. Huh? But then, of course, uh, the political reality uh, doesn't give doesn't endow the decision makers with uh, with two instruments this, this is what they have right and um i think uh, uh you know we we could uh converge towards some sort of climate club at the end uh where the most co2 intensive goods uh, receive special interest and uh, uh where one also has to talk about the question if we are to if we are to decarbonize those sectors uh, and if market prices do not yet uh, suffice to make this decarbonization worthwhile for, for businesses. So how do we go there? And there will be subsidies uh, in, in, in the game. And so uh, I think down the road, uh, it, I'm, I'm relatively optimistic that uh, within the context of, uh, of the CASA, there might be a conversation about what subsidies uh, are allowed and what subsidies are not allowed, and uh, that could be also the core of uh, of uh, how one thinks about subsidies maybe paid out uh, in in South Korea or in uh, South Africa or in China, and uh, in, in that sense, uh, uh, there might be you know enough um, complementarities uh, between these. Or the, let's see, these objectives are maybe sufficiently correlated, no? Mm -hmm. So that um, uh, that. We could make progress on on both of them with a single instrument. One stumbling block that seems to be uh, seems to have arisen in these negotiations um, is that the U.S. Um, appears to be um, more relaxed, let's say, than the EU about the use of tariffs and whether using tariffs would be a violation of WTO rules. Do you think that for the U.S. and the EU to have a bilateral agreement on how to treat imported uh, steel and aluminum um, that is that is um, carbon intensive. Do you think that it has to involve a, a, a tariffs or, or uh, you know against the, against those those imports? Or do you think there's other ways for them to do this? You mentioned a climate club. Is that is is embedding this kind of thing in a climate club? Does that offer more possible ways to deal with these kinds of issues that the U.S. and EU are facing? I mean, the Climate Club is uh, about tariffs as well. I mean, it's very original formulation, going back to, to Bill Nordhaus. Right. Uh, the tariffs played a very important role as, as the instrument of, of keeping countries together and make sure no one uh, no one uh, uh, behaves opportunistically. All countries contribute towards cl climate uh, policies. Now, in the bilateral context, uh, what, um, um, what the threat of, of, of tariffs is, uh, achieve is that uh, uh, they make it more pressing to uh, get to the negotiation table and to pr produce uh, solutions. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, and the CBAM 
you know, we're very careful. We are careful in Europe not to call the CBAM uh, a, 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 a carbon tariff, but in a sense, it is a carbon tariff. And uh, and, and so on both sides of the Atlantic, we have this this uh, this, this tariff threat, um, either you know very credible in the U.S. case or maybe less credible in the European case, but it's there, and uh, and and uh, it it does help uh, to, to to get solutions. Uh, I'm, I'm, that's at least that's what you know. Uh, not just game theory uh, tells us, but mm-hmm. if you go back and, and, and ask yourself why have uh, uh, countries been able to strike compromises, uh, outside options and outside threats uh, always play a role in achieving this. Um, just zooming out a little bit on on U.S. and EU um, trade relations um, and trade policies, um, we seem to see um, two concepts um, driving U.S. and EU trade policy now. One is, um, on the U.S. side, the idea of friendshoring, kind of reorienting trade toward like-minded countries, and then the, the EU, this concept of de-risking, which also the Biden administration seems to have adopted, uh, which seems to be a little more about diversifying trade away from certain um, and, and, redu- and reducing over-dependence on, on a small number of, of countries, whether it's for inputs or, or as markets. How useful do you think these these um, these ideas are as guideposts for for U.S. and European policymakers, um, and and do you think it's inevitable that if th- these are the kinds of concepts that are driving transatlantic trade policy, that you will have more trade integration among a smaller group of countries, uh, and trade will be sort of less spread out than it used to be. Yeah, so there's there's I think a transatlantic divide on this because uh, de-risking, uh, to me at least, means diversification, and diversification means uh, quite directly uh, spreading out your portfolio of, of trade partners. Uh, don't only source with China, but try to find you know other geographies, other suppliers, uh, in order to to increase diversification and uh, a better and gain a better. Uh, capacity to, to to deal with shocks, um, but that means um, not it's not friendshoring because if you if you if you were to limit uh, the the uh, you know uh, the number of countries that you're allowed to trade with, no, that that's mm-hmm. that will not uh, help you diversify. And in that sense, there is I guess there is some transatlantic divergence here. But then the question to me is, that is unanswered is what what does it mean? Be a friend, no? Uh, two countries have friends, no? Um, that's a big discussion, uh, and uh, you, you, you know, a, a country that's maybe autocratic uh, it can still be useful. It can still be a friend. Uh, I mean, the U.S. history is full of that, right? And so, sure. So, you know, if if a country helps the U.S. diversify its uh, its uh, supplies, then maybe it is a friend. And, and, maybe and it doesn't matter what its form of government is, yeah. for example. Yes, exactly. Or and the integrity of its elections. Yes. You know, if, if, and then the question is, is it in the interest uh, of, uh, of the United States, an interest broadly defined, not just, you know, maximizing economic welfare as economists define it, but, but some, some, some larger... Uh, or some broader uh, objective, then um, maybe the difference between between the European de-risking and the American friendshoring is is, is smaller than uh, than it could be, right? Mm-hmm. But it depends on what what we think uh, being a friend really means. Yeah. Um, so 
for maybe our last round, um, I, I thought we might zoom in on Europe for a second. Um, we talked earlier about the Inflation Reduction Act, which, as people uh, have noticed, uh, sparked a lot of uh, reactions and some objections from uh, from Europe and other places. Uh, the argument being that the local content rules um, mm. were going to distort uh, the normal pattern of, of investment. Um, I, I think it's fair to say that this has also played a role in in a bit of introspection and and pessimism on the European side. Um, you see this especially when you look at Germany. The combination of the, uh, the large American um, economic incentives through the Inflation Reduction Act, the war in Ukraine, which has led to a rise in energy prices, the uncertainties about China and mm. its future as a trading and investment partner, um, has you know it's sometimes captured in this this one word deindustrialization you know mm. which is uh, a, a fear uh, that many people have talked about publicly within the German political system and in the German economy. Um, do you think that there is legitimate grounds for this kind of pessimism, or is it just a um, is it just that is it just a pessimism? Um, about uh, circumstances that actually are uh, under the control of European um, and even national um, policymakers. Mm -hmm. Yeah, thanks, Jeff. Maybe two observations here. Um, the first is that um, uh, Europe, uh, many years ago, chose uh, carbon pricing over the subsidization of uh, green technologies. Uh, and the hope, of course, was that uh, the world will follow, and in particular that America would follow. And the United States had a couple of attempts to introduce carbon pricing, uh, didn't work out, yeah. right? And uh, uh, and now there is indeed a little bit of uh, disappointment that uh, uh, within this uh, very close transatlantic relationship, uh, we have two models uh, to to promote. Um, uh, decarbonization policies that are hard to uh, reconciliate, right? So so uh, the CO2 price in, in, in Europe makes uh, uh, European uh, energy-intensive uh, producers less competitive on world markets. They might end up producing uh, with green technologies, but... but uh, at a higher cost. Uh, but, at the, you know, on the transition towards that, uh, they'll have higher prices. In the United States, the subsidization does exactly the opposite. You know, it reduces costs. And, uh, and so I think there's, there's pessimism related to that. How do we, mm -hmm. how, how do we, how do we um, uh, guarantee a level playing field uh, with so dramatically different uh, policy choices? Related to that, of course, there is uh, a concern um, that um, uh, the, the industrial core uh, of Europe will lose some of its uh, uh, comparative advantages uh, in that transition towards uh, greener technologies, because um, the um, uh, because the, the green power that is that you know that that will be used in the future to, uh, to manufacture steel, aluminum, uh, chemicals, cement, uh, fertilizers, and so on, the green power will most likely be coming from countries that have more, more sun and more wind than Germany. So there will be 
imported. The raw materials that uh, are transformed using the green power uh, are also imported into Germany, Netherlands, Austria, the Czech Republic, right? Uh, because these are uh, very uh, poor countries in terms of uh, resource endowments. Now, if the raw material is imported and the energy is imported, why not produce the stuff abroad, mm -hmm. right? So there's a strong, a strong uh, logic uh, for um, those, you know, basic uh, products to, to be produced abroad, where the competitive advantage uh, looks better, and. And so there is, I think, a very serious concern about deindustrialization, about losing the heavy industries that, uh, um, up to today, have played an important role in the in the German and Central European um, manufacturing base. Mm -hmm. But that, that of course, none of that affects or limits the capacities for innovation in any of these economies. So it does not mean you know a transformation of the economy as a result of the, the green and energy transformation does not mean uh, a decline in prosperity. Um, it simply means that there is a requirement uh, for, that, that, that the economy itself will evolve, mm -hmm. that there will be less of certain activities uh, and more of mm -hmm. other activities in the future. I mean, mm -hmm. we've been living through economic transformation in this country and in Europe um, for the last you know, 50 years and even beyond. So. Mm -hmm. In that sense, isn't it a natural? Um, uh, it, maybe it's accelerated by government policies, but it's a natural transformation that would be happening anyway. Yeah, um, you're right, uh, Jeff. And, and this doesn't necessarily mean that the Germany will be a poorer place, uh, but the transition is always difficult, and uh, uh, there's a lot of. Uh, uh, concentration of uh, energy-intensive manufacturing on only few places, uh, and the question is, what will happen to those regions? There's, you know, now an abundant uh, amount of empirical uh, literature that that uh, shows how deindustrialization in uh, the United States, in Britain, in Germany has uh, not only produced. Uh, inequality, but has also given rise to more polar, polarized um, uh, politics. And, um, and so I think there is a concern. Um, moreover, the you know, manufacturing jobs, uh, very much so in Germany and in, in its neighbors, um, are very good jobs. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, if, if, you, if, if you want to, if you, are, if you come from the, from the lower part or the, the lower middle part of the skills distribution, you know, with, with the lower lower middle uh, degree, mm -hmm. uh, then uh, uh, manufacturing shops give you a premium, right? And, uh, you know, people who, who have to, uh, uh, to reallocate, you know, move out of manufacturing into the services industries typically take very substantial pay cuts. Right, that you know, f f that's that's an issue for politics. It's an issue for social cohesion. It, it might at the same time be uh, good for GDP, right? Mm -hmm. uh, uh, in the aggregate. In the aggregate, yeah. But uh, but it's, it's it's certainly a, a process that's dangerous uh, for a country with a large manufacturing share in GDP, like Germany or, or the Czech Republic, Austria, Netherlands, um, and, it, and it has risks. So I think there is. One can make a good economic argument that says let us, let us, you know, make sure that the process is uh, 
is uh, uh, not too fast. Also, you know, let adjustment take place over time. Uh, don't, don't, uh, um, or, or at least try to complement the process with, let's say, place-based policies with, with you know, mm -hmm. the the type of uh, measures that in, in Germany have worked already in the past uh, to to smoothen out uh, the individual uh, uh, consequences of such uh, a. A, a, a reconfiguration of the economy. Yeah. Um, well, you have taken us on a journey uh, across uh, the globe and the future of international economic order, uh, Gabriel. So thank you um, uh, for this uh, conversation. Thanks for having me. Um, you know, we continue to work on the integration of climate policy and economic policy. You will see in just a couple of days, uh, the paper, uh, our first paper on transatlantic climate statecraft. And for this question of the future of industrial economies, we've also published in recent uh, weeks contributions from uh, Wolfgang Reitzle, from uh, Holger Schmieding, and Steve Zabo uh, on the question of uh, economic future and pessimism or optimism. So uh, I recommend uh, uh, all of our listeners to uh, uh, have a look at, at those as well if this part of the conversation sparked your interest. Well, let me thank you um, for being with us, and we'll look forward to having all of you with us on the next episode of the Zeitgeist. Thanks for listening to The Zeitgeist, a podcast produced by the American German Institute at Johns Hopkins University. You may know us under our old name, the American Institute for Contemporary German Studies. Send us your feedback by email at info at AICGS.org or on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram, where we have new handles at A-M-G-E-R-I-N-S-T. And also please visit our website at AmericanGerman.Institute formerly AICGS, and we'll look forward to seeing you there. Thanks.